Well, turn with me to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. For those of you who are visiting with us, uh, we are in a verse-by-verse study of John's Gospel, and we have come to, we've come to uh, verse 12 and 13 this morning. I'd like to begin at verse 9. Well, let's back up a little bit further. Let's go back to uh, verse 3. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and we bear and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive Our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? We have seen in this passage that religious ritual and rule keeping and moral outlook and social service, generosity, cannot save an individual from their sin. Nicodemus struggled to accept the fact that his religion, his moral aptitude, his station in life were not enough to make him right with God. And there are many people on our forefront who feel the same way. They feel that if they just give to philanthropic or religious events or people. They feel that if they just do good to other people, they feel that if they just are a part or attend some church or or at least in name call themselves Christian, that that'll make them right with God. The problem is that today people are working all of these things They're trying, they're doing, and in their estimation, they are acceptable. The problem is they are not acceptable. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Romans 9, verse 16, so it depends not on human will or exertion or works, but on God who has mercy. Romans 3.20, 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 2 Timothy 1.9 He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Jesus Christ before the ages began. It's nothing we do, nothing we can do. It's all him. Nicodemus, like so many thousands of others, was unrepentant. And he went away from that meeting with Jesus, a condemned man. Face to face with the word of life, he departed as a dead man. You see, unbelief is the real problem with all of humanity. Now, Jesus addresses this problem in verse 11. After giving Nicodemus many illustrations of what the new birth is and what it's like, how it, how it takes place, he still didn't understand. And Nicodemus is questioning his, his words. And so he's not, he's not believing. So Jesus says in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So after verse 9, Nicodemus has no more to say in this conversation. At least nothing that's recorded for us to know. The dialogue has now how turned in, now turned into a monologue. Jesus is speaking, as it were, not only to Nicodemus but to all mankind. The phrase "I say to you" indicates that the word "you" is plural, and so it indicates that he's speaking more than just to Nicodemus. He was speaking to Nicodemus and all of his Pharisee companions, and he is speaking to us today. The text tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and all of his companions, along with his companions, did not receive, did not believe what Jesus had said or the obvious results of the truth about what he said. It wasn't that they could not believe, but that they would not believe. It was an outright refusal to believe the word of God. This is the action that everyone takes who hears the gospel and then turns away from it. They hear it and they refuse to believe it. The reason they refuse to believe it is because they cannot believe it. Paul Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, the unbelieving person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept them. They are folly to him. Foolishness. Idiocy. 
He is not able to understand them. So first, he can't understand it. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. And so because he can't understand it, he won't understand it. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul speaks of the culpability of those who hear the gospel but refuse to accept it. And even though it is sovereignly understood and received, those who refuse it are responsible for refusing it. Now, folks, I don't know how to combine those two things together. I have no answers for that. Let's let's just leave that to the Lord. He knows how to combine them. God has said that we must believe the gospel to be saved, but we cannot believe it unless God works upon our hearts to enable us to believe it. And yet, we were responsible for not believing it. Those two truths are there. They're all through Scripture. I can't explain how it works. Only to say that God works in the hearts of men whom he calls to himself and the others he leaves behind. The text that we're speaking about this morning is a rather complicated text. Most people would agree that what follows is certainly within the theme of the new birth, and that is certainly true. But there is a definite change in person when we come to verse 11. Notice it. He says in verse 11, Truly, I say to you, we speak. We speak, not I speak. But we speak. It changes from the the singular voice to the plural voice. So who are the we that he's speaking about? Well, there are several options to choose from. Some are more viable than others. So could the we be the Old Testament prophets? That's one option. With John the Baptist being the the final one, the culmination of the Old Testament prophets. He was the obviously the last Old Testament prophet. John the message, John the Baptist's message was indeed the same message that Jesus preached. John came preaching repentance and uh, and and A baptism of repentance. Jesus came preaching repentance. So their message was the same. In fact, the Pharisees sent out a delegation to check out John's message in chapter 1, verses 19 to 25. But they rejected it too. And would not be baptized by John. We see the Pharisees assembling as well to hear Jesus' message. And they rejected it. So it's possible that he could be speaking about the Old Testament prophets with John being the final one. Or could it be the disciples that he's talking about? We. Certainly, Jesus had his disciples with him at this point. 
Although I think a secret meeting at night would probably exclude the entire group of disciples, I think it's probably, if there was anyone there, maybe one person other than Nicodemus. But we're not told. It's unlikely as well that the disciples at this particular time would have been able to articulate the truths of the new birth as Jesus did. A third option would be the Trinity. Could it be the Trinity that he's talking about? We speak. One can understand his reference to the Trinity, if indeed that's what he means. Because regeneration is completely a work of God and the effects are of God too. Whatever the we, whoever the we is, it is certain that they knew what they were talking about. Their message was a divine one. Now look at the word know. We know. It is a present tense word. It means to know by infinite knowledge and without doubt. Seems to me that it's, it seems to me clear that what they know, they realize, if it is the prophets, then they realize that their message is from God. If it's the Trinity, then there is no, no problem with them knowing from an infinite standpoint. One translator said Jesus was saying, we know what we're talking about when it comes to the new birth. It is an absolute knowledge of conviction. In other words, Jesus is saying, we know that what we have said to you is absolutely true. This word know is used many times of Christ's knowledge of divine things. It's used in John chapter 5. Speaking of the Father, Jesus said, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. So Jesus is saying, I know, I know from divine, from a divine standpoint that what the Father says about me is absolutely true. It's used in John chapter 7, again of the Father. Jesus said, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So I think from evidence, I personally think from evidence of Scripture, that he's talking about the Trinity. But I can't be totally dogmatic about it. There are many Bible teachers and really good ones who believe he's talking about John the Baptist. The we know of Nicodemus in verse 2 is stating the class to which Nicodemus belonged. Notice verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. Isn't it interesting that Nicodemus uses this same phraseology but with different words. Nicodemus... Belonged he and his fellow 
Pharisees belonged to a class of earthlings that were lost in sin and could not and would not believe. That's the basis of his knowledge. The class is met with Jesus, we know. This class of Nicodemus and his people and humanity in general is met with, we know, which speaks of another class of humanity of which he is the head and the representative. This is the class that is born of the Spirit. So you have really two classes of people on earth. You have the class of the unbelieving and the class of the believing. And there is no in-between. Now look at the word seen. I told you early on when we went to this study that sometimes we'll be speaking about one verse. Sometimes there'll be words. Sometimes there'll be narratives. We have a lot of words to look at this morning. The word seen is an interesting word. We know what we have seen. It's a perf- It's in the perfect tense, meaning that there was an abiding vision in the eye witness truth or testimony of Jesus. Jesus knew what he was saying and he knew it was true and he he knew it from the perspective that he saw it all the time. This is the kind of testimony that one would take into a courtroom and testify of under oath. You've seen the courtroom scenes or you've been in courtrooms and you've heard the witness say, uh, or the bailiff say to them, do you, sw- do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And you swear that you will tell the truth. And you do that based upon a witness that you have made. I saw. I heard. I was there. That's the kind of witness that Jesus is giving to Nicodemus. He is not speaking about opinions, but about objective facts. The divine knowledge and objective observation of Jesus' testimony was not accepted by Nicodemus. Think about it for a moment. The only one in all of the world that really knew the truth and was telling him the truth And he rejected it. The words do not receive are present tense. Showing that there was a constant refusal to believe the gospel that he was hearing. This is the summary. What we see here is the summary of John 1.11. He came to his own people. But his own people did not receive him. Nicodemus' problem was not a lack of divine truth, but a self-willed refusal to believe it. It is demonstrably true that Nicodemus didn't understand the truth of the new birth. But as one Bible commentator puts it, Jesus was not speaking about the new birth itself, but about the results of the new birth and that he was chastening 
Nicodemus, not for his failure to understand about the new birth, but for his failure to believe it on the basis of observable facts. Now, what is he talking about? Observable facts. I want you to think back to the time just after you came to know the Lord. Think about your life before you knew Christ. And then think about your life after you came to know Him. Was there a difference? Was there enough of a difference that people saw the difference in you? I remember very clearly, I worked in an aircraft hangar with about 70 other guys. I became a Christian and I went back to work in that hangar. And it was, it was almost instantaneous that people began to say to me, Snyder, what's happened to you? You're different. I had no idea what to tell them except that, that Christ was in me, that he'd saved me. That's all I knew to tell. Didn't know how. But people could see it. There were observable differences in my life. You see, you really can't see the new birth any more than you could see the wind. What you see are the effects of the wind. When the wind blows, you see it. It stirs, it moves things, it changes things. And yet, it is in itself is invisible. So it is with the work of the Spirit in the hearts of God's people. That's why Jesus says in verse 8, So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God comes into a person's life, things change. And those things are observable. They are able to be seen. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's blatantly different. Other times it's subtly different. But there is a difference. You can't visualize the work of God in the heart of an individual, but you can see the effects that he brings about. Paul spoke about these effects in Galatians chapter 5. Turn with me to Galatians 5. These are the effects of the Spirit. They are called the fruit of the Spirit. I remember preaching a series Years ago on the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Notice what he says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's no prohibition. To loving. No prohibition to joy or peace. No prohibition to kindness and goodness and faithfulness. No prohibition to gentleness and self-control. 
These things are the visible effects of the new birth. Now, there is, this is what I think partially what Jesus is talking about. That there is found within the individual in whom the Spirit of God works a change of heart and life. There is a newfound love, joy, and peace that indicates a conformity of mind toward God. We are no longer haters of God. We now love Him. We no longer we no longer wallow in the self-pity of humanity. We have joy because God has given us the joy that He Himself has. We no longer are fearful like the rest of the world seems to be. We now have peace. Our peace with God has been settled. One's attitude towards God changes and the believer begins to demonstrate a love for God that is not seen before. Their joy in knowing Christ is, can be observed and the heart that is redeemed from sin finds peace and rest in the promises of God. These are the things that the unbelieving world cannot understand. They're foundational characteristics of spiritual fruit. There is then an apparent long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness when conversing with others, whether in word or in deed. Interaction with people in general becomes more patient, less aggressive, and it has built into it a good will rather than hostility towards others. I don't think I've ever lived in a day when there's more hostility between people than there is today. I mean, over things that, over things that mean nothing. I was driving to Monticello a few months back, and... I made I made some kind of move on the road that that got under the skin of a fellow behind me. He pulled up next to me and rolled his window down and gave me a tongue lashing like I have not heard since I was in the military. And you see it over and over. People attacking people for no, for no reason because they got their parking spot or because they're sitting in their car in front of their house. The believer has long suffering and gentleness and within himself an idea of goodwill toward people in general. And then there is faith and meekness and temperance or self-control which reveals a new chart of conduct for the believer in Christ. This creates a revised attention to one's life and the way it's lived. It has to do with our testimony and our dealing in our dealings with others. 
What kind of testimony do we have when we converse and deal with other people? The believer shows a faithfulness to the Lord that is evident to those around him. Isn't it worse when someone in business who claims to be a Christian cheats someone than it is when someone in business cheats someone who does not claim to be a Christian? Doesn't that seem worse? Cheating's cheating. But Christians ought not to live that way. They are to be faithful to their Lord and to His dealing in their lives. He overcomes, this person overcomes his power to personally strike back at those who persecute him or do him wrong. He demonstrates self-control, bringing him into conformity to the word of God. These are the outward evidences, the visible evidences of the new birth. Jesus spoke of these in in natural illustrations to Nicodemus. But he did not recognize them spiritually. He only thought of them physically. So he says to him, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So the earthly things that Jesus spoke of are the visible effects of the new birth that can be observed by anyone. Just like anyone can observe the wind blowing by the effects of it. Anyone should be able to observe The work of God in the heart of the one who belongs to Christ. The heavenly things are those things that the new birth can only, that can be only known by divine revelation. So he's saying to Nicodemus, if I tell you about the wind blowing and you don't understand that, how are you going to understand about the Spirit's work, which is heavenly? This is further support that it is only God who opens the human heart of people to believe the things of God so that they can be truly understood. William Hendrickson writes, Such heavenly things lie completely outside of the range of man's experience. In their conception, their origin, they are so majestic and transcendent that they could never have occurred to man's finite mind. That's true. People who who do not know the Lord could never imagine the splendor of God's work in Christ. They wouldn't even it wouldn't even enter their minds. If then the earthly things have been rejected, How can it be reasonably expected that the much more mysterious heavenly things would be accepted? And now Nicodemus is silent. He cannot even seem to come up with another how can these things be. This was indeed a dire and serious warning to Nicodemus. 
And it is a warning to all of those who hear the gospel and see what it has done in the lives of those many people who, whom Christ has saved. The gospel either does one or two things to people. It either softens their hearts and breaks up the stone so that they receive it, or it makes the heart harder. One of the two. Sometimes it takes a while for the human heart to be broken to pieces by the Word of God. Other times it happens, it seems, very quickly. God God deals with people the way He has decided to deal with them, not the way we think they ought to be dealt with. The heart of man is so dark and so deceived that when they see the marvelous effects of the salvation of Christ, they mock at it and they hate it because it shines a light on their sinful deeds. When you refuse to laugh at filthy jokes, it shines a light on the filthy jokes. When you refuse to enter into some kind of dishonest dealings at work, it shines a light on those who would enter into dishonesty. And the effects of the Word of God in your life through salvation shines a light on the lives of those who live in darkness, exposes their sin. And that's why they hated Jesus, and that's why they hate us. Now notice the next verse. How much time? I've only got just a few minutes, so I may not finish all of this. I'm not going to finish all of it. He says in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. It's an interesting verse. Why did he say that? Why does he make that statement? It's, it almost seems out of place, but it is really not out of place. Because in the next verses, Jesus gives the answer to unbelief. In this chapter, beginning at verse 1, Jesus has been speaking about the new birth that comes from above. That's key. Anothen, from above. You must be born from above, Jesus said. It is the work of God bringing about new life to those who believe. Now, you see in verse uh, 7, that's, that's given in verse 7 and 8. Literally, it is being born from above. And so if Nicodemus had believed the Old Testament, and certainly he believed that there was a kingdom coming, because all the Old Testament saints believed that, we find that reiterated to us in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn there with me. Hebrews 11. I'm going to stop in five minutes. So if Nicodemus believed the Old Testament, 
He should have believed in a kingdom that was from above. Because the Old Testament saints believed in that kingdom. Notice what he says. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13. These. He's speaking about the Old Testament saints. These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised. But having seen them. And greeted them from afar. How did they do that? They did it through the eyes of faith. They took God at His word, believed His promise that they would receive a kingdom. So they greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Why did they do that? Because they knew the earth was not their home. They were looking for a kingdom from God. Notice verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. So if they had been thinking about the place where they came from on earth, they could just go back there. That wasn't what they were thinking about. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Oh, a heavenly one. One that is from above. Not here on earth, but from above. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And that city is not yet here. We see it in Revelation coming down from God like a bride ready for a marriage. The new city, Jerusalem. So Jesus makes this statement to show the exclusivity of salvation. You know, the religions of the world hate Christianity for this reason. Because it is exclusive. Only those who believe in Christ and follow Him are in it. Nobody else gets in. It's exclusive. It keeps people out Who do not believe. So in reverse order. And I'll stop with this. In reverse order. Jesus is the only one. Who has come down from heaven. Therefore he is the only one. Who can ascend back to heaven. There have been a few that ascended to heaven. But none that came down from heaven. He's the only one who came down and that can ascend back. And so for him, it was a round trip with heaven as the starting point. The son of God is the only one who can ascend to heaven. And that's why salvation or the new birth is from above. Jesus brought salvation with him when he came. He brought it with him. And when he ascended back to heaven, he sent his, his spirit 
to complete the work of salvation here on earth. Bringing salvation that was from above. Now there are all kinds of people who have written all kinds of books about heaven. And I want to tell you, they're all bogus. They're not worth even reading. Because those people don't know what they're talking about. Don't believe them. Human beings do not have the ability to visit heaven because they are confined to time and space here on earth. There was only one person that visited heaven. And when he visited, it was not bodily, it was spiritually. The Apostle Paul And so, Jesus said, no one has ascended to heaven. No one but he who came from there. Now I'm going to end with this. Turn to Proverbs chapter 30. Verse, look at verse 4. And I'm going to come back to this next, next not, well, yeah, next week. Uh, I'm going to come back to this next week and finish this out. Because I found it very fascinating Proverbs chapter 30. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you expect this to be somewhere else? Maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah. But it's in Proverbs. Look at verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? He asked the question. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Oh, he uses the wind as a... Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Yes, we know. We know who it is. His name is Jesus. He's the one that came down from heaven. He's the one that ascended to heaven. And when he was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, it put a cap of of actuality and genuineness and promise that will actually take place upon all that God has said. So when he tells us that we will be with him for eternity, we can bank on the fact that we'll be with him for eternity. When he tells us that we have eternal salvation, we can bank on the fact that it will never end. So I'm going to stop there. Those of you who have the notes see where I'm going. But I want to explain it myself next time. So we'll stop right there. All right. Let me make an announcement or two before we go.